Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bob O'Bannon, one of the pastors here on the staff at New Life. would like to invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Philemon, which is located right before the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> Uh, a small, short, very brief little book that's very easy to look past, but um, uh, a wonderful book that has a lot to say to us today, as God's people. The date was January 1st, 1863. President Abraham Lincoln, on that day, put his signature to the Emancipation Proclamation. And by doing that, he proclaimed free 3.5 million slaves in the United States of America. And when Lincoln signed that very famous document, he said, I have never felt more certain that I was doing the right thing than in the signing of this document. Now, that's a very interesting comment. We might wonder why would Lincoln even have to say that. Of course it was the right thing. (laughs) How could it not be the right thing to do to free 3.5 million slaves. Well, the fact is that while this is something very clear and obvious to us today, it apparently wasn't so clear and obvious to some in Lincoln's time. In fact, reports say that as Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation that his hand was trembling so much that he could barely hold on to the pen suggest that maybe Lincoln wasn't quite as confident as he said that he was. What, what, why would he tremble at signing such a document like that? Again, fact is, not everybody agreed with Lincoln at that time, and so what seems very obvious today wasn't obvious to everybody then, and perhaps one of the contributing factors to this situation is the fact that for some, even the Bible seems unclear on whether slavery is a good or a bad or a an acceptable thing. Uh, Slavery is mentioned in the scriptures many times, and if you look through the scriptures to find a very direct, explicit condemnation of slavery, it will be hard to find. And so some people read the Bible and they say, I don't know if the Bible is even against slavery. And we certainly know that slavery is wrong, so if the Bible got that wrong, what else is the Bible getting wrong? And so this issue introduces for some today um, a reason to question the scriptures, causes some to be embarrassed about the Bible, uh, to lose confidence in the authority of the scriptures. And so this is something we're going to look at this morning as we look at this little book called Philemon. What we're doing here at New Life is moving our way through the scriptures One sermon per Bible book. We started in Genesis and we're moving toward Revelation. We've been in the letters of Paul lately. Just finished the pastoral epistles. And now we reach this little letter called Philemon. Philemon was written by Paul, as I just mentioned, about 60 to 62 A.D. So this would have been written uh, a few years before the pastoral epistles, even though the pastoral epistles are in our Bibles before Philemon. But uh, Paul wrote this when he was under house arrest in Rome and wrote this about the same time that he wrote the letter to the Colossians. 
Uh, themes in this letter of Philemon would include reconciliation, uh, the love of God's people, and of course this issue of slavery. <clears throat> so that's going to be our topic today. We're going to see what this little book, easily overlooked, has to say about such a vital and important topic, particular in our nation of the United States, where this has been such a contentious issue for us for so many years. And what I'm going to show you today is that you can have confidence in your scriptures, in your Bible. Um, the Bible is not pro-slavery, and we're going to see that, I think, pretty clear in this letter. So I'm going to read the whole thing. It's just 25 verses. We'll read the whole book of Philemon, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive me, excuse me, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. God, um, we do look to your spirit to help us to understand what is written in this letter 
By your spirit, for our benefit, open our eyes, soften our hearts, that we might behold wonderful things in this work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there are three main figures here in this book of Philemon. We have Paul, first of all, the apostle, the one who's written so many letters in the New Testament that we've been studying for a while here at New Life. We also have this person named Onesimus, and Onesimus is a runaway slave. And we have a third person named Philemon, after which the letter is named. Philemon is um, a wealthy Christian with a large household, and he is also a slave owner. And so what we're going to do is look at this letter through the perspectives of these three people, Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon. Paul's leadership, Onesimus' conversion, and then Philemon's love. So let's start here with the Apostle Paul and his leadership in particular. And by his leadership, I mean specifically his efforts as a leader to be a peacemaker. Paul is a peacemaker in this letter because what we have here is conflict between these two individuals named Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon was the rightful owner of Onesimus as his slave, and we see in verse 15 that Onesimus apparently has fled from Philemon, verse 15, for this is perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. So Onesimus, we believe, fled, and not only did he flee, but if you look at verse 18, Paul says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account, Paul says in verse 19, then I will repay it, which is a suggestion that somehow Onesimus has um, maybe stolen something, robbed or uh, has uh, by theft taken something that rightfully belonged to Philemon, and so Paul is offering to take care of that problem. So we have this conflict between Philemon and Onesimus, and Paul looks at this situation, and his heart is filled with a desire for reconciliation between these two. And so Paul uses his position as a leader to step in as a peacemaker. And he does this in just a masterful and skillful and godly way. We see a few things about the way Paul handles this. First of all, we see that he's the one that takes initiative in this situation. So Onesimus fled Philemon. We don't know how Onesimus got to Paul in Rome, so many miles away. Those details aren't given to us, but somehow he did. And so Onesimus and Paul have now formed this very strong relationship. And in verse 13, you see that this relationship is so close that Paul would like to keep Onesimus with him. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment. But Paul is aware that that wouldn't really be the right thing to do because Onesimus belongs rightfully to Philemon. And so, <clears throat> I mean, Paul could just ignore the whole thing. That would have been a lot easier. Who likes to step into the middle of relational conflict? Uh, nobody, but Paul knows that this is the right thing to do, to take the initiative, and just the writing of this letter is Paul taking the initiative to try to bring about reconciliation between these two people. I mean, that should reflect the heart of every Christian. Every Christian should have a desire for reconciliation. In particular, Christian leaders should be agents of reconciliation between conflicting parties. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the peacemakers. And so that's what Paul is taking the responsibility to do in this situation. First of all, taking the initiative, but then also notice how he proceeds very gently 
in this situation. He says this in verse 8. He says to Philemon, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I could invoke my apostolic authority. I am an apostle here. I am a person of authority. And I could just tell you what to do, Philemon, and expect you to do it. But what Paul says is, no, that's, that's not the way I'm going to do it. In verse 9, he goes on, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not going to invoke my authority. I'm not going to come down with a heavy hand on you here, Philemon. Don't see me coming to you as an apostle. It might be instructive that in verse 1, Paul doesn't even identify himself as an apostle, but as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And almost all of Paul's other letters, he opens by identifying himself as an apostle. But it's like Paul doesn't want to come in too heavy-handed here. He wants to come in gently. And what he's saying to Philemon is, Philemon, for the sake of love, I want you to do a favor for me. I'm not bringing down the heavy hand here. Do me a favor. And then lastly, we see that as Paul acts as a peacemaker, he's actually willing to sacrifice. So I already mentioned this theft that we think might have taken place, Onesimus stealing from Philemon, and Paul just simply offers to Philemon. He says, look, if that's happened and he owes you something, charge it to me. I'll pay for it. Verse 19, I will repay it. I mean, this is how much Paul wants to see reconciliation between these two men. Again, this is the heart of every Christian. Every Christian should long to see reconciliation. I know I've shared this story with you before, but you might remember this guy named Alvin Strait. This is from back in the 90s. A movie was made about this, how he was estranged from his brother who lived hundreds of miles away, and he heard that his brother was ill, and Alvin Strait happened to be um, elderly and had some eyesight problems, so he couldn't drive, didn't have a driver's license, and so he got on his lawn tractor and rode it 240 miles to reach his estranged brother, seeking to reconcile with him before his brother passed away. I mean, that's the heart of reconciliation. That's a, per a person willing to go the extra mile to reconcile with someone with whom he had been in conflict. And that's the heart we see here in Paul, a peacemaker. And that's how he uses his leadership. Now, as we look at this, however, we might have a question, though. Um, we might be a little disappointed in Paul as a leader because what we would really like Paul to say as a leader is this to Philemon. Philemon, what's the matter with you? You're not supposed to be a slaveholder. Slavery is wrong. We all know that. Free Onesimus. That's the obvious thing to do. Y you would expect Paul to go into maybe a long explanation of why slavery is wrong and to call for the overflow or the overturning of slavery in Roman society, but he doesn't do that. And so some are, are disappointed. We want Paul to say more about this, and he doesn't. Well, how do we explain this? What, how do we deal with this? And there are some factors to consider that I think will help us understand this. And the first is this. One thing we have to be very careful about doing is drawing a one-to-one -one correlation between the kind of slavery we see in a book like Philemon and the kind of slavery that took place in the United States um, 150 or so years ago and, and more than that. Um, they're not they're dissimilar in many ways. So, you know, for instance, American slavery was largely based on race. 
which is one of the things that made it so disgusting. But slavery in the Bible was not based on race. There were people of all kinds of races who were under the yoke of slavery. In the United States, slavery was an indefinite thing and sometimes permanent for slaves for their entire lives. Very often in biblical times, slavery was temporary. Uh, slavery in America was um, uh, an effort to, in some cases, kidnap people and force them against their will into slavery. But in biblical times, slavery was sometimes voluntary. That is, people um, uh, voluntarily became slaves to assume the role as indentured servants to pay off debts that they owed. And once those debts were paid off, they were, they were freed. Um, in biblical times, sometimes there were doctors and professionals and very prestigious people who were slaves. There were occasions when slaves owned other slaves in biblical times. And none of these things do we see in slavery in America. And so I'm not justifying slavery here. It's still bad. It's still wrong. Anytime one individual oppresses or enslaves another, that's wrong. But it's not the same in the Bible as it was in the United States. So we have to be very careful about reading our own national history into the slavery that's depicted in the scriptures. Here's another thing to consider. Slavery was absolutely foundational to the Roman economy at that time. Um, I, I hear differing reports, but I've read as many as 30 to up to maybe 80% of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. So the economy was completely dependent upon this. If Paul were to write and say, I want slavery to be overturned, it could have gotten him branded as more dangerous than people already thought of him as a Christian leader. It could have made life much harder for Christians who were slaves if their leader, the Apostle Paul, was calling for the overthrow of the institution of slavery. It could have eventually gotten Paul executed to call for the overturning of slavery. So these all might be reasons why Paul wasn't being so explicit about calling for the overturning of this institution. But I think more central, maybe the most important thing to know in response to this question is that Paul is engaging in a particular strategy here. I, I'm fully convinced that Paul is opposed to slavery. But the way he chooses to attack it is through spiritual means, not political means. He is hoping for a transformation on the inside of people that will then flow outward to the opposition of slavery as an institution. What Paul wants to see are hearts changed, not just a change in government or a change in economic system, the change in the hearts of people. He wants to see the gospel change people, not the government. He wants to see it a, a, a bottom-up kind of effort rather than a top-down. That as the gospel goes forth and people become Christians, that in their lives, in the church, they would show an example for all, an alternative way of living where no person made in the image of God ever enslaves another. D.A. Carson says it like this. He's referring to Jesus here, but I think this would apply to Paul as well. Jesus did not come to overturn the Roman economic system, which included slavery. He came to free men and women from their sins. The overthrowing of slavery then is through the transformation of men and women by the gospel rather than through merely changing an economic system. 
F.F. Bruce said it like this, what Paul's letters do is to bring us into an atmosphere, I would say through the gospel, in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die as hearts are transformed by the gospel. So I think that's Paul's strategy here. It's a little more subversive, we might say, than outwardly explicit. So Paul's leadership, a peacemaker who is approaching slavery in a particular way. But let's go on to consider Onesimus and his conversion. Uh, Onesimus is a slave name, very common slave name. As I mentioned, he's the one who is, uh, was a slave of this guy named Philemon. And when Onesimus was under the authority of Philemon, apparently he was not a believer, not a Christian. But um, again, somehow Onesimus found his way to Paul. And when Onesimus found Paul and got into a relationship with him, Paul shared the gospel with him, and Onesimus believed and became a Christian. And we see this here in verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, Paul says, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, that's kind of an indirect, odd way to say it, maybe, but I think this is what Paul is saying. I became his spiritual father, obviously not his physical father, but his spiritual father. The text actually reads literally, I gave birth to him. Uh, what Paul means is I gave spiritual birth to him. Now, we know only the Holy Spirit can give spiritual birth to someone. I think what Paul means is that I was the means by which Onesimus came to believe in Jesus and to become a Christian. Uh, incidentally, uh, George Washington, our very first president, uh, you might know, is, uh, was a, a slaveholder. It's very disappointing for many to, to learn that. Uh, his wife, Martha Washington, had a slave who um, was charged particularly with attending to her needs, and this slave's name was Ona Judge. And uh, the Washingtons kind of prided themselves on treating their slaves very well, but... Uh, the slaves didn't always see it that way, and they had as many as 47 slaves try to escape Mount Vernon, and Ona Judge was one of them, and at 20 years old, she managed to escape from the Washington household. And um, the Washingtons made attempts to get her back, and it was just never succeeded. But what we've learned is that Ona Judge, after her escape, became a Christian. And she said that it was by the means of my escape that I became a child of God. And that's what has happened here with Onesimus. He escapes, and in God's providence, the Lord pursues him, providentially brings together this relationship with Paul. He repents, he believes, and he's saved. And the result of that is that Onesimus now is a new man. He's different. He's changed. Look at verse 11. In parentheses here, Paul says, Formerly Onesimus was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So what does he mean there? He was useless. I mean, I guess we're not exactly sure, but it would seem to suggest that he wasn't a very good slave. He wasn't a very good servant. He didn't work very hard. He wasn't a good worker. He did not contribute to Philemon. He was useless, but now he's a Christian. Now he's useful. Paul says. Now there's something different about this man. He's not the same. He's a new creature in Christ. The old has passed. The new has come. And so now he has something to offer to both Philemon 
and to Paul. This is always the mark of conversion, friends, that there's change. There's something different about you when you become a Christian. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you don't have your continued sin struggles. But it means you're different. Your goals in life are different. Your heart has affections for different things. Your pursuits are different. They're changed. They're reoriented, like John Newton said. John Newton, a former slaveholder who was a believer who fought hard against the slave trade eventually, said, I'm not what I should be, and I'm not what I hope to be, but I'm not what I once was. And that's a good description of of a Christian. We're all on this path toward holiness, but we're not what we once were. And that was the case with Onesimus. He was changed. And we might just say as an aside here that one way that we can show a change in our heart is in our work ethic. A Christian should never be known as someone who's lazy, It honors God for Christians to be hard workers, whoever your boss might be. And it seems that Paul has this in mind in Colossians where he says this. He gives this command, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, not just to look good as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, work hard. As for the Lord and not for men. Perhaps this is what Paul has in mind here as he is recommending Onesimus Onesimus back to Philemon. He's saying Onesimus is different now. (laughs) He's coming back not to work primarily just for you, Philemon. He works for the Lord now. And that's what makes him different. But again, we've got this question that arises. Why... Why is Paul talking to slaves like this is okay? Why does Paul seem to just assume that this is all right? Why doesn't Paul in Colossians here, why doesn't he condemn slavery? Why doesn't he more explicitly seek to oppose it? Well, again, let's try to think of it in a different way. One of the tactics of the scriptures are to speak to specific individual situations without necessarily addressing the broader context in which those situations take place. The scriptures will very often address persons, individual persons in specific situations and not necessarily address the institution or the government structure that that person happens to be laboring underneath. So, for example... I mean, imagine there's a soldier, Christian soldier, and he's at war, and he has a commanding officer over him, and the soldier wants to know if he has to obey his commanding officer. And you might say to him, yes, you're a Christian. You should submit to the authority that's been placed over you. You should obey your commanding officer. Now, you can say that without offering any commentary whatsoever about what you think about that armed conflict going on. You can say that without offering any commentary whatsoever about what you think about war in general. You might be thoroughly opposed to war, but here is an individual situation, one Christian, a soldier, who wants to know if he should obey his commanding officer. And you can say yes to that. And that's similar to what Paul does here in the scriptures. He's talking to people who are slaves in that situation without necessarily offering any commentary on what he thinks about the whole institution of slavery. And don't forget, 
Paul also offers commands like this in Colossians. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I mean, in this time that the Bible was written, that is an absolutely radical thing for anybody to say to a master. You need to treat your slaves in justice and in fairness. If we look throughout the whole rest of the scriptures, if we just allow the Bible as a whole to speak for itself, what we will find is that the overall tenor of the Bible is anti-slavery. I mean, just think of the words of, of Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene and he says this in Luke 4. He says, the Father has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and, to rec uh, and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are depressed, uh, oppressed. That's one of Jesus' main parts of his mission, is to set slaves free. Just think of um, the... Uh, just the, the, the moral grounds on which slavery is opposed. In order for people to oppose slavery is wrong, there has to be some kind of absolute moral foundation on which to do it. And that's what the Bible provides for us. The Bible tells us that there is a God of truth. There is a God of righteousness who has given instruction to us. That it's not just simply up to how we view things. There is an absolute morality to which we are all accountable. And in fact, this was the approach that Abraham Lincoln took in his debates with Stephen Douglas in 1858. Stephen Douglas was pro-slavery and Lincoln was not. And so here's what Lincoln said. When Judge Douglas says that whoever or whatever community wants slaves, they have a right to have them, he is perfectly logical if there's nothing wrong in the institution but if you admit that it is wrong, he cannot logically say that anybody has a right to do wrong. The substance of Lincoln's arguments here and the substance of his opposition to slavery was that there is a right and wrong. Slavery is wrong and so people have a duty to oppose that. And of course the scriptures provide us just such a moral foundation. The last thing to think about is we just think of the Bible's overall tenor against slavery is just to think of the Exodus, the book of Exodus. That whole book is about a situation where God's people were enslaved and God in his mercy and grace raised up Moses to free his people, to liberate them from bondage to the Egyptians. And that event, that Exodus event becomes a paradigm for the New Testament gospel as it comes to us more explicitly. That the liberation we look forward to now is not liberation from Egypt, but liberation from our sins and liberation from death and liberation from the tyranny of the devil. And that's what Jesus has won for us. We were once slaves and now he has liberated and freed us. And the paradigm for that is set in the book of Exodus. We could go on and mention many other examples of how the entire tenor of the scriptures are against slavery. Let's consider one last thing. And that's Philemon's love, the love of this man named Philemon. Philemon's a godly man. We know that as we look near the start of this letter, verse 5, you see that he has a reputation, Paul says. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, Philemon, because I hear of your love. Philemon has a reputation for being a loving man, but more specifically, he has a love for the church. As he goes on, 
because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. This love is toward the church. Um, he goes on, verse 6, at the end of verse 7, he says the same thing. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Uh, Philemon even has the church meeting in his house, it says at the end of verse 2. So this is a man filled with love, love for the church in particular. He is a godly, devoted servant of Christ and his people. And so Paul seems to have very high expectations of Philemon, knowing the kind of guy that he is. He wants big things from Philemon. You see that later in verses like 19. The end of verse 19, he says, uh, to, when Paul offers to repay the debt, then he goes on to say, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. <laughs> so we think that's a reference probably to the fact that Philemon was converted under Paul as well. And so what basically Paul is saying here is, Philemon, you owe me one. You came to faith under me. Now you owe me something. I'm looking to you for something here. Um, Philemon. Verse 20, he goes on with this theme. Yes, brother, I want benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. Then verse 21, he says, confident of your obedience. You know, I, I, I can expect this of you, Philemon, because I think you're going to do the right thing. I'm confident that you're going to do what the Lord wants. And he goes on, knowing that you will do actually even more than I say. So, Paul loves Philemon. Philemon is a godly man. He's shown a lot of potential. Paul has high expectations. And one of the reasons this is all so important is because Paul is making a very serious request of Philemon. This is not a small thing. Onesimus, who belonged to Philemon, has fled. Onesimus is guilty of a crime. Onesimus is the guilty one here. Philemon is the one who has been sinned against. And in fact, for a slave to flee his master in this time, the penalty would have been execution, would have been death, because the Roman authorities could not have slaves leaving their master and getting away with it, because the more that happened, the more it could potentially foment other dissenters, and they could have a real problem on their hand, again, given how dependent their economy was on the slaves. And so this is a crime punishable by death. Philemon's the one offended, Onesimus is the one who has left, and here's what Paul's request is. Verse, verse 12, he says, I'm sending this guy back to you, Philemon, and what I want you to do, you, Philemon, with a reputation for being a loving guy, I want you to welcome him. And what might be the most important verse in this whole letter, the end of verse 15 into verse 16, he says, he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. But when you welcome him, welcome him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a brother. I want you to welcome, back, welcome him back, Philemon, as a brother. I know you're upset. I know you're mad. I know you've been offended. But I'm sending him back, and I want you to welcome him as a brother. In fact, not only that, but verse 17, I want you to welcome him as you would welcome I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how you would welcome me, that's how I want you to welcome your runaway slave, Philemon. I want you to roll out the red carpet for him. I want you to go get the best robe. I want you to slay the fatted calf and celebrate when this Onesimus 
comes back to you. I want you to embrace him, Philemon, not in his guilt. I want you to embrace him in grace and mercy and the love that you're so well known for. I I think what, what Paul is saying here, and this gets to the point I made earlier about Paul's strategy of trying to get to transformed hearts as a way of opposing slavery. I think what Paul is saying here is, Philemon, here is an opportunity for you in a real-life difficult situation, on the ground, an ordinary personal conflict that we all deal with many times. Here's an opportunity for you, Philemon, to show the gospel. Here's an opportunity for you to not just talk about it, but to demonstrate it, to display it, to let the world see that your heart's been transformed, that you don't live like the world. You're different. There's a challenge for all of us now to have our eyes open to exactly these kinds of opportunities wherever we happen to be, in our families, in our workplaces, in the church. Are your eyes open for opportunities to display the gospel, to show it, to not just talk about it, but to let people witness it in the way you relate to others? I think that's Paul's primary challenge here to Philemon. Show the gospel. In fact, this whole letter, when you think about it, is the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. Isn't it true that you and I have fled our master? Our God who created us and made us and in our rebellion, we fled from him and as a result of that, we deserve the death penalty, don't we? And yet God has pursued us in his providence we've been converted we've come to believe in jesus christ as our savior and now we're being sent back now we're going back to our master in fact we're already back with our master we've been reconciled with our master and even though we've run from him he has received us with grace and with mercy and with love and the reason that he can do that is that a debt has been paid Paul, in this case, paid the debt for Onesimus. Jesus paid the debt for you and for me. And that reconciles us with our master. This whole letter, it's a picture of the gospel. And maybe what's most astounding is to think about how Jesus, in fact, did this. Philippians 2 tells us this. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And that word for servant is actually the word for slave, the same word that's used here in Philemon for slave. He took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became a slave for you and for me so that we can be reconciled to our master. Is this the gospel that you believe in? Have you put your faith in this Savior? What better Savior could there be than one like this who would take the form of a slave to rescue runaway slaves like you and like me? Through the gospel, we can say, I am no longer a slave to fear. I am no longer a slave to my sin. I'm no longer a slave to the devil. I'm no longer even a slave to death. I am a child of God through Christ who became a slave for me. This is something worth singing about, and we're going to do that in just a second. God, we thank you so much. You are good to us. Thank you for your gospel all throughout the pages of your word.
Father, open our eyes that we might see opportunities to live this gospel before others, to display it, to show to others the work that you've done in our heart and saving us for yourself. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.